Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Monday, November 13th, 2017. Checking the notes, last one, one last time. Last one, yeah, whatever. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you to slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare. Compare what people are saying In the name of God to the Word of God, no shortage of crazy things being said out there. We take the time to open up God's Word to compare and contrast what the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-appointed apostles and apostolettes, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complexes, those whom we need to be listening to, whose books apparently we need to be buying and whose small group curricula we should be studying instead of the Word of God. Yeah, weird how that works. Over and again, we demonstrate that the steady diet of doctrine, that is teaching that is being put out there uh, by so many of these folks, is not biblical. They can sit there and crow all they want about how much they believe the Bible how they say that they stand on the Word of God, that they really, truly believe that God's Word is infallible and all this kind of... They don't teach what it actually says. What's the point of saying you believe in the infallibility of God's Word when you don't teach the infallible message in the infallible, inspired Word of God? It's just it's kind of weird. So uh, lots of deception going on today. The uh, church is in full-blown rebellion. A Greek word for that word, by the way, is apostasy. Yeah, the, the church is in full-blown open apostasy, open rebellion against God, his word, Jesus Christ, sound doctrine, the apostolic preaching and teaching, and the message that we've been given. It's it's just crazy go nuts up there. You know, that's all I got to say. And we demonstrate this not to sit there and toot our own horns. No, we we demonstrate this in order to warn you. You can sit there and go, you know, that Rosebro guy, does he ever have anything positive to say? It's like, well, yeah, of course I do. Do you not listen to all of the episodes of Fighting for the Faith? We mix it up. You know, we do this. Part of what we do is tearing down. Part of what we do is building up. Part of what we do is warn. Part of what we do is proclaim. 
The idea here is that between the mix, between all of the different types of programs that we put together, you're going to begin to intuitively learn sound biblical discernment, uh, a right understanding of God's Word, how to spot, what to listen for uh, when somebody is teaching false doctrine in order to protect yourself, your family, your loved ones, your friends, co-workers, uh, people in your church, and it may be that the person that is deceiving them is your current pastor. Keep, the, keep that in mind. So the idea here is, is that what we address on the program, what we address on the program, uh, there's no way to get to all the false teachers out there, so we try to find examples of current popular ways in which God's Word is being twisted and manipulated so that by looking at it in the laboratory— you can then take it out into the real world. That's the idea. All right, let's talk about what we're going to do on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. We're going to begin with the Prophetic Holy Orders Network Information Exchange Syndicate update. We're going to be heading to The Ramp. The Ramp. We're going to be listening to Micah Wood say something that's, that is false, but he baptizes it in biblical language. Yeah, this is uh, one of the primary ways in which a lot of people are twisting uh, God's Word and teaching false doctrine nowadays is that they claim some direct revelatory insight from God that is supposedly related in one manner or another to something that the Bible says, and then when you listen to them, it's clear that what they're trying to do is baptize it in Scripture. Now, back back in the day, I'm going to date myself here, I, you know, <laughs> Back in the day, when I was a young lad, when I was in high school, in fact, high school, junior high, it was pretty popular for um, really hip, cool dudes who uh, <laughs> who had the moves, who had the hair and stuff like that, to kind of wear you know open neck tank tops or V shirts and stuff like that, and they would have a silver chain. With uh, what looked like a silver horn, and I don't mean trumpet, I mean like, you know, think of a bull's horn or something like that at the end of the chain. And uh, when you would look to see where you would get these things, um, you found out that the chain themselves, if you wanted something you could afford, and the horn itself that was silver was electroplated. Now, if you don't know what electroplating is, that means it's not solid silver. It's not solid silver at all. Um, and I think you could do electroplating with gold. You can do it with silver. But what you do is you start off with like a, a base metal that is cheap, and you run an electric current through it while it's dipped in, you know, in a gold or silver bath kind of thing. And the electrons of the electricity cause the the gold or silver to kind of form onto this uh, less expensive metal. So electroplating, yeah, it's it's a cheap cheap man's way of looking like he's uh, he's got more money than he does. I just saying, you know, that's kind of how it worked out. At least in the seventies and eighties, you know, I I am I haven't been in the market for. <laughs> Gold or silver chains, like I got to afford them anyway. But I haven't been in the market for any of these things lately. So, um, and I must confess that at one point I did buy an electroplated silver chain with a gold horn thingy, and um, 
I got it as like a sales prize. Do you, do you remember back in the day when you – you still have to do this, I'm sure. If you have kids, I mean, you get them in, involved in sports and there's like, you know, fundraisers. Well, I attended private Christian schools and so we would have like annual fundraisers and they'd bring some fellow in to kind of whoop up the masses, you know, to get them all energized, to, to let them know that if they sold a certain amount of units that they would be eligible for different types of merchant, merchandise. And one year when I was in high school, I actually sold enough of whatever it is we were selling. And I can't even remember what we were selling that year. But I, 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 we got enough, I sold enough that I got a couple of things. I was able to get a cheap pair of golf clubs. <laughs> yeah, I did. And, uh, and also an electroplated silver chain with a horn thingy. And, uh, gotta tell you, it didn't last very long. It turned green really quick. So, um, <sighs> yeah, <laughs> but hey, at least for, you know, for a day or two, I looked really cool, you know, r- really cool. I was thinking about feathering my hair, but uh, <laughs> those of you who are my age, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Anyway, so, you know, the, t- you, you, what we're going to be focusing in on today is, is uh, you, you, I'm trying to build the theme, at least without saying the theme exactly. But now that I'm talking about the theme, you realize that the theme is related to what it is I'm about to say. But uh, think of it this way. We're going to be looking at examples of cheap electroplated doctrine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, cheap electroplated doctrine, you know, where God's Word is kind of used to baptize something that is clearly some kind of weird base alloy that you you know that is not worth anything, including anything regarding sound doctrine or your salvation or anything like that. So uh, for, for, we're going to be looking, listening to Michael Wood, like I said, uh, the ramp, and he's going to be talking about strategic encounters, and uh, then we're going to be listening to the Barbie girl herself. That's right, Terry Savelle Foy, as she explains to us the power. The power, the power, power of positive affirmations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, this is, this is not even close to what God's word says. And uh, then uh, we'll switch it up a little bit. We'll switch it up. We're going to be doing a uh, Osteen family twin spin. Um, we're going to start with Victoria Osteen. <laughs> and I got to tell you. Uh, you know, as I was preparing for the program today, my <laughs> my web browser for YouTube, you know, when I hit the pause button, when I had heard enough and I was ready to kind of be able to talk about what we would be doing with this segment, um, <laughs> it was one of those fortuitous pauses. I mean, poor Victoria. Her face looks like it got hit by a train. <laughs> her face looks as mangled as her theology. Anyway, it's just weird how that turned out. I will not be sharing it on social media. I know some of you would like to see it, but no, I will not be doing that. Because if I do, I'm going to be really, I'm going to be like soundly beaten to within an inch of my life. And the problem is, is that the beatings may be justified. So I won't be doing that. So we're going to be hearing from uh, Victoria Osteen. What does your yes look like? <laughs> What a ridiculous question. What does your yes look like? Well, it starts with the letter Y, mm -hmm, and then there's an E, and then the letter S. That's what my yes looks like. Are you talking about what my handwriting looks like? Uh, My handwriting is hard to read. 
in English. It's a lot easier in Greek and Hebrew than it is in English. But okay, yeah, my 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 yes looks like a Y and an E and an S. So I mean, does that answer the question? I don't think so. But we'll take a look at uh, what she's teaching there, and then we're going to be checking in with Joel Osteen as well. And uh, the name of the message is Peace With Yourself. And you're going to note that last week and this week, we have spent some time, we'll be, doing it, we'll be doing it today to start off with, spend some time noting the false teaching as it relates to uh, anthropology. Now, I, I'm using anthropology in a broad sense here, uh, and that has to do with the doctrine of man. And the idea here is that in order to correctly teach sound doctrine, you must have a correct biblical anthropology. Biblical anthropology requires you to recognize that prior to the fall that human beings were sinless and were very good, created in the image of God, and that as a result of the of the devil's temptation uh, to disobey God, that Adam and Eve, they fell, and now every human being is born dead in trespasses and sins. Scripture, um, according to the command of Christ, we as Christians are to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name, which requires us to preach both law and gospel, and the law of God is going to correctly identify and diagnose our malady, which is sin. And it is a sinful condition first that manifests then in behaviors as well as thoughts, words, deeds, things you do, things you don't do, and stuff like that. And this peace with yourself message from Joel Osteen runs against the grain of what Scripture teaches regarding biblical anthropology, that uh, after the fall we are dead in trespasses and sins. And even as Christians, we are to daily pray the prayer that Christ has taught us to pray where we say, Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. So we'll be doing that. And then in hour number two, we're going to head to Cedar Ridge Christian Church in Broken Arrow, Oklahoma. I think we should call it Broken Doctrine, Oklahoma. At least uh, Cedar Ridge Christian Church has definitely got broken doctrine. As we listen to their vision-casting leader uh, preach a sermon titled Limitless Time. Limitless time, and we're going to apparently learn about that all-important doctrine of margin. Yeah, I have no idea what that is. So that will be today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. Strongly recommend you make yourself comfortable. We've got a lot of ground that we need to cover, and since we're going to begin with the Prophetic Holy Orders Network Information Exchange Syndicate Update, let's do this. Down at an English fair, one evening I was there When I heard a showman shouting underneath a flare I've got a lovely bunch of coconuts There they are, standing in a row Big one, small one, some as big as your head Give them a twist, a flick of the wrist, that's what the showman said I've got a lovely bunch of coconuts Every ball you throw will make me rich there stands me wife, the idol of me life, singing roll a bowl a ball, a penny a pitch. Singing roll a bowl a ball, a penny a pitch. Singing roll a bowl a ball, a penny a pitch. Roll a bowl a ball, roll a bowl a ball, singing roll a bowl a ball, a penny a pitch. Yeah, that's right, I've got a lovely bunch of coconuts. 
So we're heading over to the ramp as we listen to Vision Casting. Leader Micah Wood explain to us uh, this revelation that he had regarding strategic encounters. And you're going to note that this is going to be a, a quintessential example of electroplated doctrine, which means it's not really sound doctrine. It's just designed to, well, look like it's sound doctrine. But the the, the core of this thing is just cheap, cheap stuff that is not at all silver or, you know, no, not at all. This stuff will burn. But uh, let's listen in as he explains to us this important, important strategic encounters revelation. Here we go. To get into the word this morning. So if you would join me by going to Matthew chapter 13. So we're going to read a couple of passages in Matthew chapter 13, a parable and then an interpretation of a parable. But before we get into that, let me just set up where we're going this morning, because it's a follow-up to what we talked about last week, and really, I believe, is important for us this month as a church, both corporately and individually. Now, as we were approaching last Sunday, I had actually had a totally different direction in mind as we were approaching last Sunday, but I began to feel this sense that as a church body... We need to think about November differently. We need to think about November. God wants that church, the ramp, to think of November differently. What does that even mean? Okay, well, there's God in heaven going, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. The the ramp, the ramp down there is... uh, they, they're, they're thinking the wrong things about November. We, 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 oh, man, I've got to interrupt the pastor. I know he had planned on preaching a particular sermon and stuff, but I've got to interrupt him and get him to help the people there to think differently about November. Uh-huh. A month of preparation. Preparation for what? I didn't know exactly. Just preparation, a month of preparation. To really lean in to hear what the Lord had for us. I really felt like November was to be... To lean in and to hear, really hear what the Lord had for us. Sounds really, you know, pious and almost biblical, but this is cheap electroplating for sure. Where each of us individually leaned in and said, Lord, what are you speaking to me? And that by doing that in the month of November, we would be able to really enjoy December, the richness of the holidays and family and what God's going to do there. And then we would also be set and ready to hit the ground running in 2018. So those are some of the things that were really um, churning on the inside of me. as we were- so They were churning on the inside of Michael with just churning. Last Sunday, we came back here for prayer before our Sunday morning service. And as we were praying together, I shared my heart concerning that we began to pray. And as I did, Kevin McBride, you guys love the McBrides, by the way. Yes, very, very much. Kevin McBride began to share during prayer. And then after prayer, he said, I continue to see this Joshua thing. Like when Joshua crosses over the Jordan. I continue to see this Joshua thing. Just like when Joshua crosses the Jordan. Wait a second. Joshua having the children of Israel cross the Jordan River is in the Bible. But see, this is just cheap electric plating. Yeah, it's it's not really what the Bible teaches regarding the crossing of the Jordan River. 
He has this encounter with the commander of the Lord of hosts. And we know from Scripture that ultimately that's a manifestation of Jesus before Jesus comes as a baby. You get that a couple times in the Old Testament. Because Joshua falls down and worships him. And anytime it's an angel that's worshipped in Scripture, the angel always stops the worship and says, don't do that. Worship. Well, this is true. When angels are worshipped in Scripture, the angels, unless they're fallen angels, say, stop that. alone. And so when the commander of the Lord of hosts receives worship, it's a sign that it's actually Jesus. Well, that's true, yes. So Joshua has this encounter with Jesus. And what's important about this encounter with Jesus is that it's not just a face-to-face encounter. It's a strategic encounter. Right, it's not just face-to-face stuff. No, it's not just face-to-face for the same saying, Hey, how y'all doing? No, it, it's it's a strategic encounter. It's it's grab your battle plans. We have battle plans. Yes, we do. We're we're we have battle plans, and so it, it's a strategic encounter to strategize, right? Has this moment? It's at the end of Joshua chapter five, where he encounters Jesus, and from that encounter, he emerges with strategy for how to take the first city in the promised land. Right. Yeah. So. Maybe the reason why he's referencing that story, he's not actually teaching it, by the way. He's just referencing it. This is the electroplating part of it, uh, putting over, putting this silver portion of Scripture over a false teaching. But I'm pretty sure the reason why he's talking about this is because it's pretty clear the direction he's heading. So he had this strategic meeting with God in order to help the people at the ramp figuratively take their first city kind of thing in 2018. He comes out of that encounter knowing this is the city we're called to take. This is how we're called to do it. So if you go back and read it, Joshua chapter 5, he is bowing in worship face to face between the commander of the Lord of hosts. Joshua chapter 6, and the Lord said to him all the strategy concerning Jericho. So out of that discussion with uh, Kevin McBride in the prayer on Sunday, what I was feeling, I emerged with this phrase, strategic encounters. Right, you see... Yeah, Michael Wood. He's just like Joshua. He had one of those encounters with God, and he emerged with the phrase strategic encounters, right? By the way, this is not the reason why God had the book of Joshua penned for us and actually points to Christ. Not Micah Wood, but Micah Wood somehow thinks that that story about Joshua, it actually points to him. Strategic encounters. And that's what I want to keep talking about this morning. Strategic encounters. I believe during the month of November, the Lord has for us strategic encounters, individually and corporately. What does that mean? It's exactly what I said a moment ago. Where you lean in to listening to God. You- so I got, I got to lean in. Is the reason why I need to lean in is because God is not capable of speaking like in a voice that I can hear? By just sitting here. I mean, for instance, I mean, I'll be blunt. My wife talks to me. She does. She's been talking to me even before we got married. In fact, for five years before we got married, she was talking to me. And when my wife talks to me, she uses a normal inside voice. And the reason I emphasize that it was a normal inside voice is because she expected my children to use normal inside voices. And if they're, the volume of their voices got above that, my wife would speak up and she would let my kids know, you use an inside voice when you're inside.
But I noted this, that every time my wife would use a normal inside voice, I'd never have to lean in. Not, not, not even once. Um, and when she would chew me out, and always that would generally be because I needed a good chewing out. I never had a problem hearing her. The only time I've ever had to lean in is when my wife was whispering. And you know, and I would have to lean in so that I could hear what she was saying. Yeah, but so are you saying that God doesn't operate in a normal inside voice when He's communicating, and and therefore I've got to always be leaning in in order to hear Him? Into the Lord in your time of prayer and your time in the Word, you may consider some type of fasting at some point. You may consider some type of shutting off different media outlets so you can hear more clearly. You're leaning into the Lord so that not only are you in that place of worship in His presence, but from that place of worship, you're also able to receive instruction and clarity and thought. Because listen- right, you know, because Joshua had strategies given to him. So if you lean in. And turn off some of those, you know, noisy things. You'll hear Jesus speaking strategies to you. You wait till January of 2018 to ask the Lord, what do you want for 2018? Then we're kind of already behind the game. But I Right. I mean, yeah, here we are. We're almost halfway through November. Can you believe next week is Thanksgiving? But so we're almost halfway through November. And I mean, this is the time. If you haven't already started, it's like, God, I need strategies for 2018. What do you want me to do? You... You see, the, the middle of November is a time when you gotta lean. You see, you gotta think differently about November now. You gotta lean in now so that you can get them and start planning, you know. The Lord wants to speak to us now in November so we can start making adjustments throughout December and hit the ground running in 2018. Furthermore, I feel like right now in the month of November, we're in a very body focused type of moment. Where in. What is a body focused moment? Never heard of one of those. December, even some of the messages, I believe, are going to adjust a little bit and be more introductory to new people who are coming in. Introducing Jesus is a wonderful time, opportunity to do that. At Christmas and Advent, all the activities that come with that. But I feel November is a very body-focused type message to say, as a house, let's get ready for what God wants to do. Okay, now I'll mention this. So, so we got to get ready for what God wants. What does he want to do exactly? Because I, I think in order for me to really get ready for the thing that God wants to do, that God would need to like let me know ahead of time what He actually is intending on doing. You know, go from like the want phase to this is I've decided phase, and then communicate that ahead of time clearly using an inside voice, so that then I can say, okay, God is intending to do this, so I need to get ready for that. See, at this point, you know, it's like you're just saying God wants to do this. See, and at that phase in planning, you know, you sit there and go, you know, I, I really want to go to Olive Garden. And, you know, maybe you, you've got a hankering for, you know, Olive Garden. What was that word we heard last week? You're hangry. I, you know, I'm hungry and angry at the same time. Yeah, I don't normally get that way. Um, but so you're you're hungry for... Olive Garden, and, and you want to go to Olive Garden, and so it comes time for the family to, you know, get ready to, you know, actually head somewhere, and you've got to now go from what I want to actually what I intend to do, but I've noticed that, you know, when it comes to eating out with your family, 
if you want to go to Olive Garden and nobody else wants to go to our Olive Garden, then you're not going to Olive Garden. You you may have wanted to go there, but you ain't going there. So in order to properly plan, you know, and like make sure that you would, you arrive at the restaurant where the family's going to eat, you're going to have to go from the want phase to the we're gonna phase. And so <laughs> here you're saying God wants to do some things in 2018. Well, that's not really helping me here. And le- leaning in isn't going to help a bit because I need to know. I mean, if you're if we're going to go down this road, not what God wants to do, but what he's going to do. You see, you see what I'm saying here. He needs to make a decision. Is it Olive Garden or you know that Longhorn Steakhouse thingy, or you know maybe maybe it's something different altogether, like maybe you know Red Lobster or Chili's or something. You know, oh, man, all this talk about food is making me hungry. Okay, um, I, I I'm gonna have to pull out here. Uh, otherwise, I'm gonna have to make a sandwich. But uh, <laughs> we're gonna take our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you could subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we're going to be hearing from Terry Savelle Foy from Joel and Victoria Osteen. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss them. We'll be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> presents Church Day Select. Alright, I got a large, non-fat, decaf mocha with... No whipped cream, two pumps of chocolate and diet soy milk for Tiffany. Oh, actually, it's just Tiff. Oh, uh, sorry, uh, Tiff, then. Like, thank you so much. I've never made a drink quite like this before. I can't even imagine what you call it. My friends call it, like, the why bother, but it sure doesn't stop me from loving it. (laughs) (laughs) Nice talking with you. Adios. I am so sorry about that. Anyway, where was I? All right, so you won't believe what happened to me on Sunday. So, like, you know how I've been trying to learn more about Jesus and God and stuff? Well, ever since I got into it, my friend Brittany has been begging me to go to her church. It's that big building on Michigan Street. It's got, like, a stage and a praise band. I mean, it's got, like, a ton of people, so the pastor must be pretty cool, right? Well, the sermon starts. I've got my Bible, my notebook, my pocket catechism, and my flower pen. All ready to hear about God. And what does he talk about? A bird. 
This guy went on some 20-minute bunny trail about a bluebird that landed on his windowsill. And I'm just sitting there like, what about Jesus? I mean, they had just had a laser light show about how much they loved him. Um, Hold that thought. I have to use the little girl's room. I'll be back in a sec. So Jeff said, wrecked him, wrecked him. You practically killed him. <laughs> oh, I am so sorry. I've accidentally dumped my white bother all over you. Your outfit is totally ruined. Here, let me use these only slightly absorbent napkins to wipe it up for you. All right, there. A little bit there. And uh, there. That seems to have gotten most most of it. Here's my business card if the stains don't come out. I happen to own and run a dry cleaner's just down the road. Anyway, gotta run. think these people realize what Jesus did. Let me explain this to you. So, first of all, I'm like a sinner, and I need forgiveness, right? So God was like, I'm going to send my son. So Jesus came, and he got on the cross, and everybody's sins were forgiven, and we were all like, cool. So when I go to church, I want to hear about Jesus. But for some reason, these people don't even talk about Jesus. You know, if you think about it, the church is like totally God's house. So Jesus invited all of us to his forgiveness party, and we all shut up and said that we loved him, and then we completely ignore him. That is so rude. Not only is it rude to God, but it's a total ripoff for me. I want to hear about how my sins are forgiven, but instead these people are like, let me tell you my life story. Um, excuse you? You think that your birds are more important than God? That is so rude. Honey, what happened to your shirt? Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down. Click on the ad banner and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could help you spot when people just dip their theology in the Bible to make it look like it's biblical doctrine when it isn't. It's electroplating. 
just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us. It is a partnership. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you get to pick your rank in our crew. Lowest rank is Powder Monkey at $9.95 a month. After that, Gunner's made at $24.95 a month. From there, Master Gunner at $49.95 a month. And then Quartermaster at $99.95 a month. This is a great way to support us. Of course, if you would like to make a one-time contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. Moving along. Hiya, Bobby. Hi, Ken. You want to go for a ride? Sure, Ken. Jump in. I'm a Bobby girl in the Bobby world. Life in plastic. It's fantastic. You can brush my hair. I'll dress me everywhere. Imagination. Life is your creation. Come on, Barbie. Let's go party. Right, it's that. That's it's Barbie Girl song. That can mean only one thing. We're going to be checking in with uh, Terry Savelle Foy, and the name of the lesson we're going to be listening to from her video blog uh, is titled "The Power of Positive Affirmations." Now, real quick, off the top of your head, can you think of a clear biblical text that teaches that positive affirmations have power? Nope, I can't think of a single text, not one. Yeah, well, we got a problem here, and that is this isn't biblical. So how is she going to somehow make it appear as if this is what God wants us to believe, confess to, you know, stuff like that? Well, let's check in with her. Here's Terry Savelle Foy. Hey, I'm Terry Savelle Foy, your cheerleader of dreams. Hey, if you haven't subscribed... Your what? (laughs) I'm your cheerleader of dreams. Go fight, win for your dreams. This podcast just push the little button right there so you can get consistent teaching tools and tips to live your dreams. Today I want to talk to you about the power of positive affirmations. Your words are so powerful. In fact, the most powerful tool, the most powerful weapon that God has given you is right under your nose. It's your the, the most powerful weapon God has given me is my mouth. In fact, I've heard Joel Osteen say, don't use your words to describe your life. Use your words to change your life. Uh Saint Joel Osteen, yeah. Yeah, although Joel is a fellow mentioned in Scripture, yeah, Joel Osteen isn't. I've heard the phrase, if you want to know where your life is headed, listen to the words that are coming out of your mouth. Right, but no biblical text says that. Well, the truth is we can't speak negative things and expect positive results, right? So we can't be saying, you know, I'm fit, firm, and muscular. I'm in the best shape of my life. And then look in the mirror and be like, I hate my thighs. I have the slowest metabolism. No matter what I do, I can't lose weight. Well, you can't speak negatively and expect positive results. Uh, So apparently my 
words are the biggest tool, the biggest weapon I have in my toolbox here, you know, for fighting the Battle of the Bulge. Who knew? Yeah. Someone describe it like this. Speaking one way and expecting a different result is no different than calling Domino's Pizza and saying, hey, I want a pepperoni pizza, thin and crispy with extra sauce. Um, and that's it. Go ahead and deliver. And they're on their way. They're getting it ready. And then you call them back and say, I changed my mind. Cancel the order. Then you call them five minutes later and say, you know what? Go ahead and make it extra sauce. Put it in the oven. Then five minutes later, you know what? Go ahead and take it out of the oven. I don't want the pizza. No, you just forget it. Give me the pizza and be quiet. <laughs> no, my point is. Is this pizza analogy used in the Bible for this uh, uh, positive affirmations doctrine? You're, you're, the angels don't even know what to do with your words because you're saying one thing, changing your mind, saying it again, changing your mind. So angels are standing by. I had no idea. So angels are standing by, ready to take my order for thinness. And uh, and and so I need to say, hey, you angel standing by here, I am going to be thin. Quick, you know, they're going to order up some thinness for me. And then I take a look at myself in the mirror and go, oh, man, I, I am such a... <laughs> A man of girth. Oh, no, the angels are going, oh, no, he doesn't want it anymore. To cancel the order for thinness. Where does it teach that? You have to speak consistently over the direction we want our lives to go, right? Well, well, why are you asking me that, right? The answer is no. No biblical text says this. And this may be foreign to you. You know, the Bible actually says we serve a God who gives life to the dead and he speaks of non-existent things as if they already exist. Uh. <laughs> so there it is. There's the electroplating right there. That's right. God calls the things that are not as though they are. Therefore, you too. You know, you're going to note that just because God does that doesn't mean that it says, therefore, you can create your reality by following suit. Mm -hmm. She's taken her base alloy false doctrine and dipped it into the Bible to make it look like, oh, this is some solid gold here. No, this is really cheap stuff. You know, I'm passionate about making vision boards. Yeah. Well, it's one thing to make a vision board, but then you have to speak to it. You have to call those things that be not as though they already are. Like <laughs> oh, man. I did not know that last part. I mean, here I set up a vision board, you know, showing six-pack abs and... uh you know, me looking younger and thinner, you know, by the minute. And I forgot to speak to my vision board because, you know, duh, you know, God calls the things that are not as though they are. So you've got to speak to your vision board. <sighs> Why do people think this is true? I said this may be foreign to you. You know, I'm No, it's not that it's foreign. It's not like it's French or something. No, this is false. There's a difference between foreign and false. We have, um, last summer, I went to Milan, Italy with my daughter, Cassidy. She had just signed a modeling contract to, to live over there and model for the summer. Well, when we first got there, I mean, the minute the plane landed, we, 
went to the hotel, dropped our bags off, and went straight to the agency. And they barely gave us any instruction. So one person told us jump on the tram. Another said a train. One said the trolley. Another said the metro. <laughs> I don't speak Italian. The only word I kept saying was excuse. Like, excuse me. <laughs> we didn't know where to go, what to do, where to even get our money exchanged. We were clueless. Well, as each day went by and we started getting immersed in the culture there, it became a little more normal, a little bit easier to jump on the M1 to the M2 to go to Duomo and to figure it out. Well, as Cassidy lived there for the summer, it just became first nature to her. Well, it was foreign at first, but then it became natural. Well, you may feel the same way when you start making positive declarations over yourself and you feel like a nut. It's like learning a foreign language. You feel ridiculous saying these words that really aren't the truth. But you're calling those things that be not as though they already are. And here's the thing. Only you can do this for yourself. You know, Jim Rohn says you can't hire someone else to do your push-ups. You have to make the declarations out of your mouth for yourself. So I wanted to share with you, because if you want to be successful, you will need to learn the language of success. And the language of success... Right, yes. If you want to be successful, you've got to learn this new language, the language of success. Yeah, you've probably been speaking the language of failure all along. Who knew? is speaking of things before they manifest, calling things that be not as though they already are. That's the power of positive affirmations. So I want to share with you um, the five P's to making these positive affirmations. Number one is make sure your declarations or, or affirmations are positive. Make sure they're positive. Avoid right, the first P. It's got to be positive, man. Negative statements at all costs. So that means refrain from saying words like no, not, never, don't, can't, lose, quit, stop. She's saying them right now. The key phrase is to focus on what you do want, not on what you don't want. So what I mean by that is it's not as effective to say I am not overweight. I am losing weight. See, you're putting emphasis on the fact that you're still overweight. Instead, make it positive. Say, I am so happy weighing my ideal weight of 120 pounds or less, whatever your ideal weight is. So focus on the positive. And again, we're just practicing Romans 4.17, calling things that be not as though they already are. Now <laughs> we're just practicing Romans 4.17. Now let's take a look at Romans 4.17 to see if it teaches us to call the things that are not as though they are, you know, kind of magic formula style. Um, the answer, by the way, is no, it doesn't say that. In fact, we're going to start in uh, Romans chapter 4, verse 1. So what shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So this portion of the book of Romans is making a distinction, a sharp distinction, between salvation or justification by grace as opposed to salvation or justification by works. Big distinction in Scripture. And so that being the case, that's the overall context of what's going on here. You're going to note that what she's saying that we're supposed to be learning and doing from this uh, apparently applying ourselves to positive affirmations and stuff is not what's going on here. 
So we continue. For if Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. Would the scripture say Abraham believed God? It was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as is due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteous apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. And that's uh, Paul there quoting Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. So is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. Well, how then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? Well, it was not before. It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and to his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if the adherents of the law are, of the law who are to, are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist, in hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, because he had received a direct revelation from God. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a 100 years old, when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith, and he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. So you'll note that it goes on then to explain the context. The context is Abraham believing the direct revelation that he had received from God, that the whole world will be blessed through his offspring, and that his offsprings would be as numerous as the sand on the sea. And even though he was well past the age of you know, con, you know, giving, you know, conceiving, you know, he's an old man. His wife is barren at this point as well. Um, he still did not waver in unbelief, but trusted God. And that is why his God basically credited to him as righteousness, the faith, the trust that he had in God. That's the context of this. And so she can sit there and she can say that she's practicing Romans 4.17 but Romans 4.17, if you're going to truly practice it, does not require you to speak positive declarations over yourself. Instead, Romans 4.17, properly applied to Christians, is to look at yourself in the mirror of God's law and see that it says that you are a sinner, knowing that you have earned and rightly deserved the wrath of God. But Christ, Scripture says, has bled and died for your sins, and God has forgiven you of your lawless deeds. 
Therefore, you believe that you are reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. That's the point of Romans 4.17. Not for you to speak positive declarations over yourself. All right, moving along. Time for a Joel Osteen twin spin. When I'm feeling lonely, sad as I can be, all by myself, an uncharted island in an endless sea. What makes me happy fills me up with glee. Those bones in my jaw that don't have a flaw, my shiny teeth and me. You know they walk a mile just to see me smile. Shiny teeth and me. All right, so we're heading over to Lakewood. We're going to begin our Joel Osteen, actually it's Osteen family twin spin, by checking in with Victoria Osteen first. And she's going to be answering, uh, well, asking the question, actually, what does your yes look like? So I want you you know, somehow take some time right now before we launch into this important sermon uh, delivered by Victoria Osteen, and just think about what what does your yes look like? <laughs> just weird. All right, here we go. Opportunity presented to you, and you said no, no, I don't want to do that. No, I can't do that. Maybe you didn't think you were qualified, or maybe you thought there was someone else better for the job, or maybe you just didn't have the resources. You know, there's numbers of reasons that we say no when certain opportunities present themselves. But then have you ever done that and then later got to thinking, ugh, what did I say no for? I wish I'd have done that. Maybe I could have done that. Have you ever wrestled with the no before? Thinking, maybe I could. Oh, maybe I should. You see, I'll never forget one time when Joel's father was the pastor of the church back in the old building. And we were worshiping God. It was in the middle of our worship, just like we were doing today. My hands were up. I was praising God. When I opened my eyes, Joel's father had turned around in his seat and looked at me and said, Victoria, why don't you go up and do the prayer time? Well, he wasn't talking about next week or the next week. He was talking about the end of the song that was just about over. I'm sure I looked at him because I had never even remotely given him the thought that I wanted to get on the platform and do the prayer time. I don't even know where he got that, but I'll never forget chuckling (laughs) with a nervous laugh. And I said, uh, daddy-o, I don't think so. You know, in his sweet, gentle way, he just smiled at me. He turned around and he never said anymore to me during that service. You know, I remember standing there thinking, I just need to get out of here. <laughs> but when I got home, I was... Where in the Bible does it talk about this? I, you know, I'm, I'm having a hard time remembering the passages. Yeah, it's probably because there are none. ...with that no. I was so disappointed in myself and really, quite frankly, I was mad at myself. Because I thought to myself, if... If he thought I could do it, why 
do I think that I can't do it? If someone has faith in me, why don't I have faith in myself? And I went back and I went forth and I went back and I went forth. And as I was wrestling with that, I realized that that no just wasn't satisfactory to me. So I began to dig deep because on the inside of me, I realized there was a yes, but it was buried under fear. There was a yes under the fear. It was buried under the pretense that I could not do it. It was. This is what her yes was beginning to look like. Buried under the thought, why does anybody need to hear from me? You see, that no was not satisfactory to me. So I began to dig up my yes. And I began to say, I want to do it. God, help me do it. God, I want to give you my yes. And I, I want to give you my yes, God. I, 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 I don't know if I will, but I really want to. Through that struggle, I had to make a decision. Was I just going to have one foot in and one foot out? Or was I going to make a firm decision and say, the next time he asks me, if he ever does, I'm going to prepare and I'm going to be ready. So every time I'd go to church, I'd be praising with one eye open, saying, maybe not today, Lord, but not today, Lord. (laughs) You know, he did ask me again. He did ask me again. And you know what I did? I mustered up that great big yes. And I got up and I did the prayer time. Way to go. No, this is, this is ridiculous. Why are these people listening to this woman's personal life story as if it somehow has anything to do with what God's word actually teaches? You see what that yes did for me? It kicked in God's grace. It caused me. What? The yes kicked in God's grace. Now, here's the funny thing. Scripture talks about God's grace. It does. <laughs> but does Scripture talk about God's grace in the context of God giving you grace to say yes in the midst of, you know, something you're not sure of regarding your abilities? No. So here God's grace is is forming the electroplating over this base alloy of a doctrine, and it's being misappropriated terribly. To begin to rely on God. I prepared, but then I allowed the grace of God to work in me and work through me. You allowed the grace of God to work through, yeah. What text teaches this? There's a scripture that says that God is working in us to will and to do his good pleasure. Now, the text in question that she just somehow referenced is found in Philippians chapter 2. Now, the question before us is, is this teaching what she says it's teaching? And in order to apply the three rules for sound biblical exegesis, which are context, context, and context, we're going to need to look at Philippians chapter 2, starting at verse 1. Here's what it says. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort uh, from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. 
have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was by nature God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, verse 12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding holding fast to the word of life, so that In the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Yeah, you get the point. When you put it back in context, it's not teaching what Victoria Osteen is talking about. She's talking about, you know, making so that you have your yes. You got to you got to want to say yes. And God will then do something with your yes. That's not the point of that text at all. You realize that you don't have to do everything on your own. And if it gets done, it's only because of your ability. When you realize that is not always the case, but that it's God who's working in you. It's God who's preparing you. If you will get into agreement with God, God can do amazing things in our lives. If I will get into agreement with God, then God can do amazing things in our lives. That's not what Philippians 2 said at all. Wow. Okay. Let's check in with her husband, Joel. And like I said, last week we did a couple of episodes of Fighting for the Faith where we touched upon biblical anthropology and more specifically the doctrine of original sin. And it's very important that you recognize that Scripture clearly teaches that every human being who is descended naturally from Adam and Eve is born dead in trespasses and sins. This is straight up the truth. And Christ himself in Luke 24 says to Christians that they are to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name to all nations. And that requires them, therefore, to preach both law and gospel, which would cause you to recognize that you are a sinner. I'll bring another passage to bear on this in a minute, but let's let Joel Osteen kind of get the get the ball rolling. Here we go. Bless you. It's a joy to come into your homes, and if you're ever in our area, please stop by. Be a part of one of our services. I promise you, we'll make you feel right at home. I like to start with something funny, and I heard about this senior citizen. He was driving down the freeway in his brand new Corvette with the top down going 80 miles an hour when he saw flashing red lights from a state trooper in his rearview mirror. Without thinking about it, he floored it, took off to 100 miles an hour. He heard the sirens behind him. He finally pulled over and said, Officer, I'm so sorry. I don't know what I was thinking. The state trooper said, Listen, it's Friday, 4 o'clock. 
My shift is over in 30 minutes. If you tell me a reason why you're speeding that I've never heard before, then I'll let you go. The man thought about it, said, officer, years ago, my wife ran off with a state trooper and I thought you were bringing her back. (laughs) The officer said, have a great weekend. (laughs) Say it like you mean it. This is my Bible. I am what it says I am. I have what it says I have. I can do what it says I can do. Today, I will be taught the word of God. No, you won't. I boldly confess my mind is alert. My heart is receptive. I will never be the same in Jesus name. God bless you. I want to talk to you today about peace with yourself. Too many people go around feeling wrong on the inside. They don't really like who they are. They focus on their faults, weaknesses. They're constantly critical toward themselves. That recording of everything they've done wrong is always playing in their mind. You're impatient. You blew your diet yesterday. You lost your temper. You're still struggling with that addiction. You should be ashamed of yourself. They wonder why they're not happy. It's because they have this war going on on the inside. You're not supposed to go through life feeling wrong about yourself. Quit focusing on your faults. Quit overanalyzing your weaknesses. Quit beating yourself up because you're not where you thought you would be. Here's the key. You're not a finished product. God is still working on you. The scripture says God changes us from glory to glory. Yes, scripture does say about us being changed from glory to glory. But the context of that is the change and transformation that takes place in the resurrection. Uh Uh-huh. So he's baptized this teaching, and you're going to note that he has taken a text out of context and misappropriated it to the doctrine of biblical uh, of anthropology. You know how we are to think about human beings. Now I would counter what Joel Osteen just said with a, another biblical text, and here it is. It's First John chapter one, starting at verse eight. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make God to be a liar, and his word is not in us. Now, see, that text rightly appropriates, you know, that text to human beings and tells us something about how we are to view ourselves as sinners in need of God's grace. And at the same time, we also look at ourselves as forgiven on account of what Christ has done for us on the cross. So, yeah, we got a, we got, we got a problem here, and that is, is that Joel Osteen has just taken the glory to glory text and misappropriated it in order to basically circumvent what the Scripture teaches us regarding how we are to view ourselves. And how are we to view ourselves? As sinners in need of a Savior and who have been bled for and died for by Christ. You have to learn to enjoy the glory that you're in right now. You may have some weaknesses. We all do. 
There may be some areas where you know you need to improve, but being down on yourself is not going to help you do better. Having that nagging feeling, telling you you don't measure up, God's not pleased with you, you'll never get it right, it's not going to help you move forward. You have to accept yourself right where you are, faults and all. God is the potter, we are the clay. He's the one making you and molding you. It may not be happening as fast as you would like, but you don't control the timetable. Will you trust him in the process? Will you accept yourself in the glory that you're in right now? Accept yourself in the glory that you're in right now. Now, real quick, I'm going to show you the text that he is referencing. He's using for the electroplating here, but he's twisting it badly. Uh, It's the 2 Corinthians chapter 3. It's specifically verse 18, but we'll, uh, we'll back up to verse 12 so we can take a look at it in context. Here's what it says. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites may not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their eyes. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now, the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And this text is specifically promising that we will go from the current glory that we have to being, well, just like Christ and the resurrection, because we too will be resurrected in the same body like his. That's what that is referring to. So, yeah, this is not telling us. We just need to accept ourselves in the current glory that we're in. That's not the point of this text at all. The problem with not liking yourself is you're the only person that you can never get away from. You can get away from your boss. You can get away from your neighbor. You can get away from that crazy uncle, but you can never get away from you. You wake up with you. You take a shower with you. You go to work with you. You even go on vacations with you. If you don't like you, life is going to be very miserable. Don't go around being against yourself. You may have some things wrong with you, but can I tell you, you have a lot more right with you. You may- Wow. You're going to note here, this, this, this just runs against the grain of Scripture, that we are to humble ourselves, we are to recognize that God's law says that we are sinners, we are to be silenced by God's law, and trust and have comfort in the fact that Christ has bled and died for our sins. Joel Osteen here is basically telling somebody with a terminal illness that they are that there's more good with them than bad. This is not good. This you know, this is some pretty cheap electroplating. That's all I got to say about it. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. 
My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. When we come back, we're going to head over to a church we've never been to in Broken Arrow, uh, Oklahoma, Cedar Ridge Christian Church, as we learn about limitless time. Stay tuned, don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. If you want advice on how to have your best life now, you're in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Hi, Ridge Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith sermon review time. This is our first time reviewing a sermon from Cedar Ridge Christian Church, and boy, do I get the feeling this won't be the last. Let's do this right. The good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Cedar Ridge Christian Church. Greg Pittman residing. Name of the sermon is Limitless Time. Limitless Time. And uh, this is a mess. That's the best way I can put it. I'm sure he's going to try to baptize this teaching in a way that will make it look biblical. But again, I assure you, this is electroplating. It's really cheap. If you wear this, your your neck will turn green. So let me go ahead and back off on the music. Without any further ado, here's Greg Pittman and Limitless Time. Here we go. Welcome to a brand new series we're calling Limitless, and I want to welcome our Sepulpa and our Quita campus, uh, those of you that are watching online. We're going to define limitless like this. Limitless is being or seeming to be 
without limits, seeming to be without limits. Now, none of us really believe that there are no limits, but we all tend to act like it or live like it sometimes, don't we? Happened to me, in fact, I told you the story back a few years ago when I was on my way back from North Africa. We've been visiting uh, uh, some of our workers there, and we had a... So note, he's not starting with a biblical text. He's starting with this doctrine, but this doctrine is not a biblical teaching. I uh, stopped because of a connecting flight in Madrid, Spain. We ended up spending the night there in a local uh, hotel. And uh, if you've ever uh, been to Europe, you know that uh, hotels there are a little different and and mostly a little smaller than we're accustomed to in the States, and so are the elevators. And uh, there was a little bitty elevator that four of us uh, actually had to really, you know, kind of breathe in to get into, and uh, we got up about halfway up between uh, the ground floor and the next floor, and it went, uh, it stopped on us. It was stuck and, uh, we had to call and, and, and ask for some help. And, and the whole time is I can feel myself heating up and I've got just enough claustrophobia in me that I began to get a little nervous and began to warm up. And fortunately, uh, uh, it was quickly that they were able to get the door open and we were able to kind of slide out the backside. It was an interesting time, but, uh, I don't recommend doing that. It's one thing to ride in an elevator, uh, and have it, I, I over capacity and feel a little out of breath, but it's not okay for life. It's not okay in life for you to just completely cram your schedule. It's not okay to go over the limit with your finances because when there's no margin, there's no room for error, when our schedules are crammed, when things are hurried, uh, it 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 just takes the joy out of life. And so, yeah, this sounds like this guy's a life coach rather than a pastor. What is this? We're going to talk about uh, over the next couple of weeks how life is better with margin when we don't live like there's no limits to life. Because what happens is margin means you don't have to drive 80 miles an hour to get everywhere. Margin means that there's money at the end of your month. Margin means that that you enjoy things because you're not trying to do everything. Margin means you're not distracted because you're always... Where in the scriptures are we taught the doctrine of margin? Thinking of what's next or what's undone. Life is better when there is some margin. And so let's define margin this way. Margin is the space between you and your limits. It's so margin is the space between me and my limits. Is that how the Bible defines margin? That white space, that, that, that blank space between you and your limits. And we all have those limits. We all need that margin between us and our limits. Your margin, uh, you may not need as much margin. Some people are more high capacity than other people, but we all have our limits. And what happens is in our attempt to get the most out of life, in our attempt to, to, to make progress, we tend to narrow the margin in our life. And when there's no margin, our stress goes up. You know that stress when... Right, yeah, stress goes up. Is it a sin to not operate with margin in your life? Time is running out and you didn't get it done. When the month is running out and you're out of money... When there's no margin, then we tend to get focused on one area. When there's no margin, uh, our relationships suffer. And so why is it so hard for us to 
to build in that margin in our life? Why is it so difficult for us to leave some of that space between ourselves? Yeah, yeah. Why, why is it so hard? And our limits. And for some people, it's just the, they think that's the way they are. For some people, they say, I'm, I'm, I'm just not disciplined. I just don't, I, I just can't do that. But really, I think it falls down to one thing, and it's, it's fear. We, we fear something. We fear that if I stop doing that, then something's not going to turn out. I'm, I'm afraid that, that something's going to happen. If I take my kids out of that, what if they miss out? What if they fall behind? I'm afraid if I, I don't stop doing that, then what's, what's going to take place? If, if, I don't, if I don't do what everybody else is doing, uh, we may not get the same enjoyment. We may not have the same things. We may not enjoy uh, the good life. We, we, we're, we're afraid of something. We, we fear that we won't have the stuff other people have, or we fear that we might not matter or we might not count. And so often we... Yeah, I, I fear that I may not matter or count. So I, I need some margin, yeah. ...our busyness uh, with, with mattering. We equate our ability to buy with mattering. And, and so it becomes a thing of fear. And you know what? God speaks to this very issue right here. We find that the idea... God speaks to the issue of margin... Okay. Of margin is really a faith issue. And we read it all throughout the Bible. Uh, in fact, I want to go back to the Old Testament for just. We, we read about margin all throughout the Bible. It's weird. I've read the Bible many times, cover to cover, and I can't remember all those margin texts. Maybe it was in the margins. Yeah, you see what I just did there? Uh-huh. And I want to remind you about when God led his people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Remember, they'd been in slavery for 400 years, and all they knew was work. They knew work from sunup to sundown, and they knew work from for seven days a week. Yeah, that's because they were slaves. Had nothing to do with fear of insignificance or anything like that. But when God leads them out of Egypt and he develops this nation and he begins to establish this nation, he gives them some new rules and he gives them some new values. And in, in those laws, he, he, he builds in some margin. I want you to think about one of those in, in the Sabbath day that God's, God gave them. In the Ten Commandments, he said, I want you to observe this Sabbath day. So there it is. There's the electroplating right there. This is designed to make it look like this is just solid gold doctrine. It's not. He's not actually teaching the commandment regarding the Sabbath, how it's a type and shadow that points to Christ, um, he's not going to cross-reference it with Hebrews 4, which makes it clear that the Sabbath was always pointing to salvation by grace through faith alone, the true Sabbath rest that we have in Christ uh, because of what Christ has done for us. It, he's not going to point to any of that. Instead, he starts with this doctrine of the need for margin, and see, and God speaks to this issue because he gave people the Sabbath. Uh-huh. The Sabbath is not about this important doctrine of margin. 
So there was this idea of taking a day off and and not working, that, that you were not to work during that day. It was so foreign to his people that that was not something they were used to. God told them when the sun goes down on Friday night, all work is to cease and you have to wait before you can start working again. And God was teaching them to trust him. Of course, they're thinking, what if we don't get it done? And the reminder is God saying, trust me. What if we don't get the crops in? What are you talking about? They were in the wilderness. There were no crops. Just trust me. What if we're not finished? God says, trust me. And so God helps them to build in this margin in regard to... Uh, So apparently, who knew? I mean, the Sabbath was all about margin and time management. Wow. To their time. Think about it uh, in God telling his people that they were to observe the tithe, that they were to put aside a part of their money and uh, to do something specific with that. In fact, in every Hebrew home, this would be taking place. People would be putting back money. There were no banks for them to, to store up. And so they put their money in a jar or a tin or a can or something where they knew they could not get into that money. They knew they couldn't live on that money money, that that was to be a a buffer, that they were going to have to give that 10 or 15% to help provide for the poor, to give to the religious society. Yeah, that wasn't a buffer. It's not like it was a savings account, you know, to make sure they had margin in their life. They actually had to give it to God. And they visibly were able to see money that they could not spend. And it helped build into their culture this financial margin. Just because it comes in doesn't mean it's something that we can spend, that it can go out. One other area that I want to mention was the laws of gleaning or harvesting or reaping that God gave to this gave to His people. I mean, that's the way a farmer would make their money would be to reap and to then sell their crops. But God said to them very specifically, "I don't want you to reap the edges. And if if a harvest falls off, if it falls on the ground, I don't want you picking that up. And don't go over." your fields a second time and, and, and pick up. And God said very specifically, that was to provide for the poor and for the foreigners. But you can imagine the, uh, the pushback there. But God, what, that's, that's money. What, what, what if we can't provide for ourselves? And again, it's a faith thing. God says, I want you to trust me. I want you to know that I'm going to provide for you, that I will take care of you. I don't want you to take everything to the limit. I want you to leave some space. And in that space, God, I'm going to provide for you. I want there to be space. And in that space, I want you to trust me that I'm going to provide. I want to talk specifically today about margin when it comes to our time, when it comes to our our schedule, our calendars. Because we live in a culture where we try to do as much as we can. Every one of us, we complain about it. We live this hurried pace. We live this fast lifestyle. Every one of us feels overcommitted in some area. And the truth is, we need some margin when it comes to our time. And here's this truth. Your time is your life. That's really the case, isn't it? I mean, when you... Yeah, my time is my life. Okay. Notice he's not exegeting a single text. 
think about it, uh, our life uh, is made up of the sum of our time. When we evaluate our life, we look at at, 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 at time. As your time goes, so goes your life. And what's interesting is the Bible has some very clear things to say about that. In fact, if you've got a Bible or something you can follow along, I want you to go to Psalm chapter 90. This is an interesting psalm here because most of the time we think of the psalms written by King David who wrote most of them or his son King Solomon or some of the other worship leaders of that general area. This particular psalm is the oldest one that is recorded in that volume and it was written by Moses. Written by Moses during a very dark period. It was, it was after God had, had, had taken his people out of Egypt, after they'd moved their way into the promise, to the prom, edge of the promised land, after they had sent spies in to take this land, and then unfortunately when the spies came back, or at least most of the spies came back with a bad report, the people refused to trust God and to take the land. It is a dark period in, in, in Israelite history. And Moses is going to write that psalm sometime during that the aftermath of, of those events right there. And I want to remind you that, that Moses' life is kind of split up into three categories of life. He spent the first 40 years of his life growing up in uh, Egyptian royalty, uh, growing up in the home of Pharaoh. He, after uh, 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 just in a, in a bit of anger, he, he, he murdered an Egyptian. Then he spent the next four years. Years, um, the next 40 years in the desert tending sheep. And then he spent the next 40 years leading God's people uh, out of Egypt and then spent a, a majority of those 40 years uh, wandering the wilderness with them. And so Moses has this unique perspective on time for us, this, this unique insight on time. Moses knew what it was like to see time tick slowly away like a shepherd would, just sitting, spending the day watching the sheep. He also knew what it was like to have time race away, to live a a fast-paced life, to live in that Egyptian royalty. He had that unique perspective of seeing it from all kinds of angles. And he's going to write Psalm 90 for us and give us some insight. Verse 1 says this, Lord... You have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born or you brought forth the whole world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And we get a pretty interesting uh, view right there. God uh, is everlasting. Yet somewhere between everlasting and everlasting is this finite man. And we're reminded from the opening lines of this this psalm that life is short for man, that our life is short. Yeah, life is short, and that is part of what God uses to remind us to seek him and to seek his mercy and forgiveness and to repent of our wickedness. We are but a vapor, Scripture says. But how does this teach this all-important doctrine of margin? But notice that it's couched in the context that, that our life is in the context of everlasting. The context of our, our life is eternity. Life is short, 
But it's wrapped up in in eternity, this everlasting God from everlasting to everlasting. God is huge. And notice it doesn't say anything about from beginning to end. It says, no, 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 the arrows go way past that. From everlasting to everlasting is God. And somewhere in that eternity, man's life. Next couple of verses, we see four kind of understandings of what it is that life is short. You turn people back to dust saying, return to dust, you mortals. And so we began to to read a little bit about how this brevity of life is compared to to dust, that we have this, this life that is just like, well, it's like the dust in the wind. In fact, life is so short that we talk about ashes to ashes and dust to dust when it comes to a funeral time. Life is short says in the next verse, a thousand years in your sight or a day that has just gone by or like a watch in the night. So another example of the brevity of life. It's just like a day that's gone by. And we've all said that. I, I don't know where the day went. I don't know what happened. I don't know what was going, going on. Where, where, where did it all go? Where it's, it's like a night watch, which was like three or four hours, uh, in the night. It, it just suddenly was gone or, it gets viewed this way. You sweep people away in the sleep of death. They're like the new grass of the morning. In the morning, it springs up new, but by evening, it's dry and withered. So two examples right here. You Yeah, by the way, Psalm 90 is not saying life short. Make sure you have margin. Sweep people away. In fact, the King James Version, it talks about like a flash flood, how all of a sudden the water comes and swept them away like a flood. Or it's like grass that it grows up, but by the end of the day, it's dried out and withered. That's, that's what Moses tells us life is like. It is short and it's so fragile. In fact, he gets very specific in the next verses. Our days may come to 70 years or 80 if our strength endures. Yet the best of them are but trouble and sorrow for they quickly pass and we fly away. Our, our days are numbered. We get 70 or 80 years. Sometimes somebody lives in, to be in their 90s or, or maybe even into their, their 100s. But ultimately, uh, we're going to die sometime around that time frame. Re- remember, uh, there's a generation, as Moses is writing this, that is going to die in the wilderness. That's what God promised. That older generation would never enter into the promised land. And so estimates from uh, uh, researchers have said that during this time frame, maybe 80 to 85 people a day are dying off in the wilderness. That's a lot of funerals that Moses is having to, to, to be a part of right there. And it's just to remind us that our days are, are numbered, that there's, there's a, well, there's a shelf life. In our house, uh, you know, those expiration dates on products that are in your pantry or in your refrigerator, uh, we, there's a little bit of argument uh, uh, in our household. Uh, I tend to see that expiration date as kind of a recommendation, whereas other uh, unnamed members in my household uh, see that as pretty much cut and dry, that when that expiration date hits, then you probably ought to throw that uh, ingredient or that product away immediately. I might try it for another week or, you know, two or something like that. Uh, I tend to, you know, do it by smell. If it seems like it's okay, then I'm going to go ahead and eat it or drink it or consume it in some way. Other people see it as black and white. We're reminded that 
regardless, our life, it has a shelf life. And the Bible, yeah, that's right. It does. It was very clear about that. Psalm 144.4, man is like a breath. His days are like a fleeting shadow. Yes, they are. James 4.14, what is your life? You're a mist that appear, appears for a while and then vanishes. John 7, 6, my days are running out quicker than the thread of a fast-moving needle. The truth is, from Moses and from every angle of Scripture, is that life is short. Verse 11, if only we knew the power of your anger, your wrath is as great as the fear that is your due. That Yeah, short life and wrath of God against sin. Bad combination should make us fear God and seek his face for forgiveness and mercy. Difficult verse for us to completely understand right there. It probably is better understood like this. If we could see God as he is, we would give him the reverence he deserves. Instead of fear as maybe... A yeah, the issue is our sinful nature. We are at war with God and rebellion against him thing, the reverence that God deserves. Or maybe this, if we could see God as he is, we would be more careful with the time that we have been allotted. Yeah, no, we would still be sinful. When we understand that, it has a direct impact on how we live. And then verse 12, maybe the most familiar of all of these verses we read, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Teach us to live our lives as if we understand our days are numbered. Because let's be honest, we, we spend our lives often as if they'll never end. We spend our days as if they're countless, as if there will be no end to them. We live our days as if they're not numbered. But the truth is, Moses is saying... God, would you teach us to live knowing that day is numbered, that there is a, a, a countdown that's going on. We, we all understand that. If you've ever been to been a part of a, going to school and you've had a final exam and you know from the beginning of the semester there's a, there's a time frame, there's a countdown that our days are numbered until this big exam or if you ever had a deadline at work, a project that had to be due, and you begin to count the days till that project uh, had to be completed, had to be turned in. Right, yeah. It sounds like he's describing the day of judgment to me. Or every bride understands that from the moment that uh, she gets asked, will you marry me? And she has to answer the answer with, I will. From the day of I will to the day of I do, there is a countdown that takes place. They are numbering their days and they begin to figure out, what do I have to do in that brief amount of time that, that I have? I've got a plan in light of, of that time frame because my days are numbered. And noticed... Teach us to number our days with this promise that we may gain a heart of wisdom. I mean, there's a promise there that if we remember our days are numbered, it helps us to know what to put into our days and maybe what to take out of our days. Certainly what we need to make as a priority. If we forget that our days are numbered, then we just do whatever we want to do. 
We let people fill our schedules up, our, our, our calendar. If we forget that our days are numbered, we let people fill up our schedules. I think the problem is sin. Or just fills in with whatever other people do, whatever, because we don't know that our days are numbered. But when we do, then, well, I like the way that Andy Stanley puts it. He says, remembering our time is limited provides us with wisdom to know how to spend our limited time. I assure you that this is not about time management in the way you're using this. If by turning away from sin because of God's wrath, if that's what you mean, that's what this text is getting at. Our time is limited, provides us with wisdom to know how to spend our limited time. My, my time, my days, my life is, is limited, so I have to limit what I put into those things, what I put into those days, how I spend my time. If we don't number our days, then we will miss, uh, misspend our time, and we will experience unavoidable regret. Uh-huh. Is that sin or just unavoidable regret because my schedule is too busy? Happens all the time to people when they get to the end of their life, when they get to their final days. People say, I I wish I wouldn't have worked so hard. I I wish that I would have slowed down a little bit. I I wish that I would have invested more in relationships. I wish that I'd spent more time with friends. Is it a sin if you haven't done these things? I mean, it sounds like it could be. Sins, you know, have something to do with God's judgment, wrath, and hell, and things like that. The list goes on and on of, of things that we regret. Because in our culture, we think that my days are numbered. I better do more. I better pack in more, more things. I, be, I, I, better, I better do as much as I can. I better add to my to-do list. But it ought to be the opposite. My time is limited, so I have to limit how I spend my time. Wow. It's, 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 this is just unbelievable. So, I mean, Psalm 90 is all about learning how to use a day planner and limiting your limited time. I know because I've already pushed back on this a little bit. Our culture tells us we go, go, go. We got to do, do, do. We got to add it. We got to put as much into a day as we can. And we begin to, to start coming up with the reasons why. If I don't do as much as I can, well, if I don't do as much as I can, I won't be, I won't be successful. I won't be as successful. But my question for you is, how do you define that? What, what is success? And what is what you're defining as success? What if that's not your definition of success later in life? Maybe you need to begin by defining what is success to you and how can I then live my time? That w- yeah, Psalm 90 is not about defining success for me or for you or anyone. Would help come up with that success. If I don't do as much as I can, I won't be successful and I won't keep up. Well, you won't keep up with who? Who is it that you're trying to to keep up? Who is that? What 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 are you? Who is it that you're trying that you're driven to keep up with? Because the danger is that the people that you're trying to keep up with, they may be people that are trying to keep up with you. 
Or it may be that the people that you're trying to keep up with are so deep, deep in debt or living a life that looks good on the outside superficially, but, but if you were trying to keep up with what's going on the inside, you wouldn't want to be there. Or how about this? If I don't do as much as I can, I won't be accepted. And again, I would ask, accepted by, by who? who? Who would that be? Yeah, what does it take to be accepted by God because God's wrath against sin is mentioned in that psalm? Listen, if you're, you're in high school and uh, uh, you're worried about being accepted by people and so it's changing the way that you do things, listen, I guarantee you in five years, those people that that's important to you now being accepted by them, you won't even hang around them most likely. You won't, you won't even, you might not even remember them. You won't even know, you might, you might have to remember who they are. You might have to look in a yearbook and go, now who is that again? And it becomes so important as to be accepted by those people. Sometimes people we won't even know in the near future. Or if I don't do as much as I can, I won't measure up. And again, I would ask measure up with who or to who or to, to what? To your parents expectation to your friends expectation your boss's expectation or your perception of their expectations listen spending all your time chasing those things that that's a recipe for for regret in life it's wasting what's most important to you your time it is your most treasured asset your time is your life and listen, if you're a believer, if you're a follower of Jesus, then this has even more serious implications for you because we recognize not just the significance of, of our, our life and the brevity of our life, but also the partnership that we have with Jesus being on mission in this world. So don't let, don't let culture take all your time. Don't let people... Fill up your schedule. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. Weird. In fact, we always do this kind of at the beginning of a, of a year is we all do some kind of personal evaluation. And maybe this year more than just going through some some uh, uh, New Year's resolutions, uh, maybe more specifically there's some questions that we could ask ourselves. Like this one, what do I need to add to my schedule? Is this a Franklin Covey time management seminar disguised as a sermon? What do I need to add to my schedule? In light of the fact that my days are numbered, are there things that I need to make sure that I'm doing? I don't mean five or ten. I mean, is there something? Is there something I need to add to my schedule? Or what do I need to remove from my schedule? Is mm, yeah, what do I need to remove? Yeah. Something that, that I need to stop doing? Is there something I need to take out? Is there something that's just wasting my time? May yeah, like bad churches like this. Maybe that, that's going to be somebody's name right there. Uh, maybe there is somebody that is stealing your life, that's taking your time, and, and it's not that they're not important to God, but maybe, maybe for this season in your life, they need to be removed from your schedule. What do I need to do more? What do I need to do less? 
Maybe this week you take some time. Maybe in maybe in our small groups that will be meeting this week, you, you evaluate and you share with some people there of some things that needed to be removed or added to your schedule, to your life, because your time is your life. Your time is limited. So what you do with your time has to be limited as well. I recommend that the people at Cedar Ridge Christian Church Carefully limit their time by attending a different church. Because Moses says, teach us to number our days, O God, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Pray with me. Yeah, Don, wow. That was (laughs) just, okay. So you'll note that uh, every example today uh, that we Played was with an example of electroplating, cheap electroplating, taking a false doctrine and dipping it in a Bible verse to make it appear like it's actually made out of silver or gold. And when in reality, it's just cheap electroplating. Not a single biblical text was rightly handled by any of these false teachers. Wow. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.